And I say good evening to the two linguistic scientists who join me tonight, James Marshand and Andrew Schiller, both from the University of Illinois, James Marshand from the Urbana campus, Andrew Schiller from the Chicago campus. I say good evening because I want you to tell me how many other ways can you readily say good evening. Let's just throw a few good evenings around. And say it slowly enough, and we'll see, and we won't tell yet what languages are being used, but we'll leave that as a kind of a puzzle for our listeners. Yo este Kivanok. Guten Abend. Um... I've gone dry. <laughs> Buonasera. Bonsoir. Bonsoir. Yeah. Guafton. Guaf. Guafton. That, could good that possibly... Afton. <laughs> oh, well, what is that? Good afton, the, uh, that's Swedish. Swedish. Good means good. Your, your, your first one, I would guess, Andrew, was Hungarian. Hungarian, yeah. yeah. I don't know why I knew that, because <laughs> I don't know Hungarian. But say it again. Jó estét kívánok. Why does that sound distinctively Hungarian? There must be something about the sound. Is, is it the yes. accent on the early syllable? There's that, and there are the uh, lengthened syllables in contrast to the uh -huh. short syllables. Now, when they said good evening uh, coming out of the caves uh, for an <laughs> evening soiree someplace uh, in, uh, say, the south of France, well, I'm talking about Cro-Magnon, early Homo sapient man, what do you think they said to one another? Uh, it's hard to say. There's a marvelous recording by uh, Bob <laughs> <laughs> in, in which he has them saying Zark Zark. And, uh, Who's this, Bob and Ray, were you about? No, I'm trying to think of his last name, Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. <laughs> had a, a recording once in which uh, uh, and a linguist <laughs> is talking to uh, a person from uh, some native language, and uh, the man is interviewing him. He says, well, what did they, how, what, you say that they have only two words. And he said, yes, they are Zark Zark. And he said, well... How do they say good morning? And he said, they say Zark Zark, Professor. How do they say good afternoon? They say Zark Zark. And he says, well, how do they tell the difference? He said, they look up at the sky, Professor. <laughs> They're not stupid. Fascinating. There's some wisdom as well as nonsense in that, I suppose, yeah. isn't there? Yes. Uh, I think one of the problems we have in dealing with when the cavemen came out of the caves is the question of the how, for example, their... Uh, linguistic instrument was constituted, that is, how the supragodal cavity was made and, and how the tongue operated and whether or not the brain could had yeah. enough uh, complexity uh, to make the tongue. Well, operate. ours is a rather special kind of larynx and pharynx, and uh, it enables us to produce a chopped-up, phonated stream of sound, which makes yes. language structurally possible. Yes, uh, they... That's not true even for our high... No, uh, anthropoid ape neighbors, is it? No, uh, it w turned out that it's literally impossible to teach chimpanzees to speak. They do not have mm -hmm. the physical equipment for it. And we are the only ape that does. But and some birds do, apparently. Parrots, supposedly. Well, no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking of human language. I know. But, oh. but they can produce the same kind of stream of sound and make the um, same noises, can't up they? Up to a point. The same morphemes, in, if in not phonemes. Not or entirely. not phonemes, if not morphemes. There, some of them have a, a rather limited uh, repertory. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the interesting difference between, uh, say, chimpanzees or gorillas and humans is uh, that this uh, supralaryngeal tract takes a right-angle bend. And uh, it is that that apparently makes the difference. Uh, and... The other interesting thing is that the newborn human baby 
has the same configuration as the chimpanzee. And it takes about a year for that uh, bend to develop. Now, that's fascinating. So even if you had a genius born uh, as neonate, but capable of, but with a 250 IQ or a 1,000 IQ, it could not, even if it picked up all the sounds around it, it couldn't imitate them. It would be talking fluent chimp. Yeah. But that's as far as it could go. Making little barks and squeals. Or whatever, yes. The general conception that we have in lay thought or in lay mythology about the origins of language is that man had that capability of producing the sort of sound stream you're talking about, but for a long time he just got along saying, ugh, U-G-H, <laughs> and maybe a few other things, and eventually he forms a few bits of vocabulary for elementary things, G give to me, uh, danger, what have you, and uh, maybe through the imitation of the sounds of the world, maybe through the sounds that come, quote, naturally in states of high emotion. These are the bow-wow and the yes. boo-hoo theories of language origin. Yo-heave-ho and whatnot. And, uh, and so on. And so the eventually language develops that way. So it's sort of a slow invention. Does that make sense, or is that just a kind of a comic strip version of the origin, origins of language? Uh, when you get into something like the origin of language, it's very hard to say what makes sense. <laughs> uh, I think that makes as much sense as anything else. Sturdivant believed that the first words were when cavemen tried to lie to other cavemen. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, it, there's a, a pun theory of the origin of language. There's every kind of theory you can think of. And recently, of course, things have changed somewhat with uh, Chomsky's belief in innate ideas and uh, the fact that uh, noun phrase and verb phrase are built in in human beings, or yeah. hardwired, so to speak. That reference uh, we should make clear is to Noam Chomsky, who's sort of the leading linguistic theorist of our time, well, or of time almost up to recently. Well, it depends on which theorist you're talking to. Well, so he's the center of much argument. That, that is, is a better correct. way to put it. That is yeah. correct. And but, but, but let's review that notion of his again. What is it exactly? Well, uh, it shifts somewhat. That is, Chomsky himself has repudiated a great deal of Chomsky's theory. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's the theory of, you might say, the hardwired nature of human language. That is, that human beings are born with certain innate capabilities that tend in certain directions in language. For example, all languages have noun phrases and verb phrases, according to Chomsky. All languages have sentences. Uh, so that means that uh, this is inborn in human beings. And a great deal of that has been explored by people like Lenneberg mm -hmm. and so forth, who feel that uh, there's a great deal to be said for that we are organized in the direction of language. That, by the way, theory goes all the way back to Herder. Hmm. A point that Chomsky makes again and again is it's quite surprising, and it really requires explanation that a two-year-old child can walk up to his mother and say, I lost the green box. He's never heard that sentence spoken to him in just that way. Exactly. But he's able to do the, co the combination of different things fluently and easily. He's learned the concept green. He knows what a box is. He's learned lost as a state of affairs, and he can string them together. He can do that only because, uh, as uh, James Marchand is saying, he's hardwired. There's a kind of a, a built-in syntax and even a built-in deep grammar. Isn't that Chomsky's word? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily defend uh, the, uh, the transformational theory, but uh, any theory of language is going to have to take certain pretty obvious things into account. For example, uh, all babies born, if they are 
uh, physically and mentally normal, will uh, spontaneously learn their own language. And in fact, they will learn several languages if, if uh, there are several languages there uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the vicinity. And not only that, they will learn them all at about the same rate. So that in one sense, languages are equally easy. Languages are of such a nature that they are graspable by an infant. And it doesn't matter where that kid is born, he's going to learn Eskimo or Swahili or anything. Another thing that uh, um, is, is very persuasive is that the kinds of errors that children make indicate that they are not simply imitating the language around them, but they are grasping general rules. Uh, for example, um, a baby uh, will say, I goad. Instead uh, of I went. Instead of I went. And what is interesting about that is that he hasn't heard I goad. <clears throat> so he's not imitating anything, but what he is doing is he is illustrating the fact that uh, he already knows, and no one has taught him this, that there is such a thing as a past tense and that this mm -hmm. is a verb and that in English, past tenses are inflected with dental preterites. Um, another and, easy and that's example, astonishing. Another example of, uh, easy example of that sort of error is that a child sees a goose for the first time, and his mother says that is a goose. And the next day, that mother goose comes along with her various goslings, and he says, oh, look at the gooses, right. rather than look at the geese. He hasn't learned the plural, but adding S as a general form of plural is a rule he's already acquired. Right, so that any theory uh, of language would have to take into account the fact that people can intuit some general underlying structure of language, and that is a self-evident fact not to be disputed. Uh, how they do it is another matter. We don't know. According to Chomsky, there is uh, a kind of innate knowledge, and apparently uh, we have evolved in such a way that we are language learners in the same way that birds are flyers and fish are swimmers. That's what we are born to do. I don't want to necessarily court the distant and difficult precincts of, uh, of philosophy, but isn't that idea of Chomsky's really a direct steal from, or rather a direct derivative from, uh, Kant? Well, also Descartes. And Descartes. The well, notion of innate categories and innate yeah. structures. Yes, right. I, I think, in fact, Chomsky later came to realize that part of this came from Descartes. That's the reason you Cartesian linguist. Mm -hmm. uh, much of it goes right back to Herder, though. And, of course, Herder was a contemporary of Kant's, and mm -hmm. they thought about these things. And uh, so much of that would be called neo-Humboldtian linguistics or whatever you wanted to call it. Though. We've got to stop for some commercials. What language do you choose to say that in for me, James Marchand? Uh... Whatever language you want it in. Say it in Swedish. Uh, uh, I'll say it in German. We müssen jetzt Halt machen für einige, wie sagt man, Commercials auf Deutsch. Reklame. We müssen nun Halt machen. Halt machen für einige Reklame. We have to make a stop for some announcements. Reklame machen in German means to make announcements. Reklame machen. Yeah. To make declamation. Okay. And we'll make those declamations and then we'll be right back. And directly back to Andrew Schiller, professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and James Marchand, who is professor of linguistics and comparative literature at the University of Illinois, Urbana. 
There are many different language families. Uh, the boundaries of some of those families are not necessarily very clear, but since much of the scholarship has been done in the West, the family we understand best is the so-called Indo-European family. If you take English, French, any of the Scandinavian languages, mm -hmm. Russian or Old Latin or Greek for that matter, and put them on a family tree and trace uh, back to the roots of all of those languages, you find something called Indo-European or Proto-Indo-European. What is it? Well, uh, presumably, uh, or um, certainly, I guess, there were a group of people somewhere back X number of thousand years ago who spoke a language. And uh, it used to be thought that they came from the Euphrates Valley, the cradle of civilizations, and so on, uh, principally because the, uh, the oldest, uh, at least known uh, of those languages, or the oldest evidence of any of those languages, was from Sanskrit, which uh, is from India. But uh, more recent research uh, seems to indicate that these people came from more likely somewhere around the Caucasus. However, and they become Indians by invading the Indian subcontinent well, and subduing the native population, the Dravidians. What Is happened? That right? Well, that that was only part of it. What happened was they they literally spread in all directions, yeah. and so you get them all the way from China to Sweden, and uh, the uh, their dialects separated more and more and more over the centuries until finally they were separate languages with sublanguages, and that is the group. Uh, to which we belong now. Now you say they spread all the way from China to Sweden, but there, are, but Chinese is not an Indo-European. No, language. no. But I'm simply indicating the, the borders, the A broad the, range, the, the extent. You say, but naturally they separated, and you're suggesting that inevitably languages differentiate with geographic uh, distance. Yes. Why is that inevitably the case? Well, uh, uh, let me first go back. I think we have to distinguish between three kinds of comparison or three kinds of location of languages in our scheme of things. One is geographic. So mm -hmm. if we say the African languages, that has neither generic nor genetic consequences. Then there's generic comparison. For example, we can say that Indo-European and Polynesian both have an article. Uh, that has nothing to do with their... Gen and then there's genetic comparison, which divides them into families. And it's very important to do that. Uh, as to why languages diverge, uh, it just seems to be natural in human beings when they get into groups to, devote, to uh, develop group languages so that if you look like, let's say, it's the United States right now, people are developing new languages all the time and differentiate themselves from their neighbors by the fact that they are different. I'm told I spoke first in life even before English, though by, uh, my skills in it are no, by no means as good as uh, that would suggest. But uh, the fact is a Yiddish speaker can especially if they talk slow around him, can understand himself and can understand what's being said to him in Berlin. Sure. And comparably, a German, if he pays close attention, and if the Yiddish speakers speak slowly, can probably understand most of what's mm -hmm. being said to him in Yiddish. So those languages, though they clearly differ, are uh, no more different mm -hmm. than are, say, Spanish and Portuguese. Right. Uh, the difference between a, a, a dialect and a language is that a language has an army and a navy. <laughs> Somebody put it that way. Yes. <laughs> um, but to get back to the question you asked before, why uh, do these things change? And I think if, if you think 
of language as an organism, a living organism which evolves. You can put the same question. Why have living organisms evolved? Because every time a new organism is born, it is slightly different from anyone that ever existed before. And you multiply these changes over a sufficient period of time and put them under different kinds of environmental and social stress and whatnot, and you wait a thousand or a million years or whatever it takes, and you're going to have something different. You may even do a sort of a parallel to the notion of, uh, of mutation. Exactly. If you take a group in, uh, of animals and get them in an isolated location, uh, sooner or later they will, their mutations will take them in a different developmental direction than the animals uh, from which they started who may be in some other location. But so languages tend to be inventive and self-reorganizing. That is true, but uh, in the case of language, uh, it is to a large extent uh, deliberate. Uh, social groups uh, demonstrate their solidarity and their difference by uh, speaking language in certain ways. And uh, this kind of change is particularly rapid and obvious among teenagers. Oh. And I think mm -hmm. this is where language change is, is most rapid. That's the English one can very often least understand, mm -hmm. unless one is a teenager mm -hmm. uh, and capable, say, of valley speak. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but that's a matter of vocabularistic change, isn't it? The, the well, words simply have No, no, meaning. many times there will be syntactic changes. Oh, yeah. uh, back to black English, the syntactic changes are obvious there. Uh, and uh, not only syntactic changes, Vowel but shifts. changes in worldview. And, and give some, give some examples of what of you're things. talking about. Oh, I can't think of any examples right off, but just thinking between German and English, one can think of many examples. No, but I mean in, in say, black English or valley-speak uh, teenage English well, or whatever. Well, uh, black English, for example, uh, uses a reduction of verb forms so that uh, in, uh, instead of I am, you are, he is, and so on, they say I be, you be, he be, and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, which is perfectly grammatical in lots of languages, African languages among others, and in Hungarian too, as a matter of fact. Uh, it is considered ungrammatical by some people in English, but it is a different variety. Uh, and so this is a syntactic uh, difference. Not Do you find changes in syntax in the speech of American adolescents? Were you suggesting oh, that yes. a moment ago? What's an example of that? I don't know that I can think of one offhand, but I, but uh, some their, their language can change in all ways. Well, I, is it's it's not syntactic to say I go for I said, uh, he goes. That's just using go as a verb form meaning uh, said to say. Yeah, hmm. the problem is how you define syntax. Syntax, and so right. But back to the black English thing, you have things, for example, word formative devices that you don't find in English at all. Mm -hmm. I, I shoot pool a lot, and a bad shot, you'll forgive me, those of you who speak Yiddish, is called a dreck shot. Yeah. <laughs> and so one then speaks, say, that shot has a certain amount of dreckitude. <laughs> uh, then you have Drekatudinosti. That's charming. That lengthens out on that. Uh -huh. So one can speak of the Drekatudinosti of a shot. Which you can't <laughs> that's speak very of in normal English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's inventiveness. That's play. Yeah, it's it's play, but it, it does enter into the language, and many of these things that are play words yeah. uh, in all languages uh, become serious words after a while, so that, for example, we have words like happenstance in English, and we no longer realize that that was just someone's play word yeah. Yeah. from happening in circumstance. How do you get from Indo-European, whatever it was, to English? 
What are the intervening stages? Well, you have um, <clears throat> the original primitive Indo-European uh, uh, at some point branching off a finger of speakers who spoke something that, uh, for want of a better name, we will call primitive Germanic. It's simply the ancestor of all the present Germanic mm -hmm. languages. Uh, these, in turn, spread out. And uh, what we call English, I guess, properly began in the middle of the 5th century A.D. 449, to be exact, when uh, the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, three Germanic tribes, invaded the British Isles, uh, essentially conquered the Celts, and, and there several Germanic uh, dialects more or less merged into a single one that we n would now call Anglo-Saxon or Old English. But now I'm a little bit confused. The uh, Romans had invaded the British Isles even earlier. Julius That's Caesar correct. started it. And there are Latin formations, certain, certainly some persistence of Latin vocabulary even in modern English. Oh, yes. So, but most of that was reintroduced, as a matter of fact, oh, was it? later uh, by uh, missionaries and then uh, uh, via French uh -huh. uh, in the Norman invasion. So actually, in, in the year 449, uh, uh, Britain was a bilingual island. Speaking Latin and Celtic. Right. Yeah. Well, the various Celtic languages, yeah. actually. And then the Germanic invasions produced a new language. By when? What's the earliest record we have of sort of old English or uh, I proto -English. think the oldest things we have go back some of those charms and riddles to about what 600 something like that it's according to how you date it but yeah <clears throat> certainly the earliest documents we have are from the middle of the 8th century mm -hmm. and you know you can play the game of dating there are some people who want to date Beowulf as far back as you can think mm -hmm. and the Eddas and so forth well some of it is English. continental obviously <coughs> so it goes back what does old English sound like can anyone do a snatch of it for us. Wet we got a day and I own yardagum, the old chinninga thrim yfremidon. Is that Beowulf? Beginning of Beowulf. That's what I thought. Britnoth madelode bord havenode. What is that? Britnoth, who was a warrior, made a speech and raised his shield. This is also Beowulf. Or something else. Yeah, I think it is. My yeah, little fragment from Beowulf, Beowulf which yeah. I gave, which I uh, trotted out for you before the program, is Bot under Beorga, Beorgas Giardenwa, which is boat going under the bridge, warriors armed, or something, I think. Yeah. We, don't, uh, we don't speak it at home anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and well, in what fact, was it? you can get an argument anywhere as to how it was pronounced. Even Chaucer, we don't know how it was pronounced. Oh, sure we do. I recite Chaucer going on. on this program all the time. It's a great fight going on right now. One that appeal with your sure to the rock of Mershat Persa to the rota. Isn't that the way to say it? That settles it. I'll go along with it. And better every vein in which liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fluor. Yeah, and there you have the problem. Do you say bathed or do you say bathed or bathed or how do you pronounce? I say bathed, or did I? Maybe I'm not sure. But we, structurally, what's the difference? If you listen closely, you can almost understand that, Chaucer. Mm -hmm. oh, yes. uh, and you can easily translate it into English. Uh, one that April with your sure soda, when that April with her sweet showers, it it scans. Well, yeah. you wouldn't know what salty meant ordinarily, but um, well, but it's close to sweet, so we can see the connection. Yeah. Yeah. But you ca if you listen to Old English, you can't really no. unless 
You just can't make any no, old English sense of it. From our point of view, is simply a foreign language. So, what was it like structurally, as compared to the Germanic from which it came, and as compared to the later Middle English which it begat? Well, old English uh, structurally is very much like modern German, hmm. and uh, German, in other words, is a much more conservative language. Has changed relatively little, and English has changed, I think, more drastically uh, than uh, uh, almost any major language, at least that I ever heard. Well, what did Old English have that was Germanic, which is lost by the time you reach Middle English? Well, it had grammatical gender, for example, such as modern German. Uh, every noun is either der, die, or das, uh, masculine, feminine, mm -hmm. or neuter. Uh, it had uh, four and originally five uh, cases. It lost the instrumental at some point but it had nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative, so that words changed uh, to signal the uh, grammatical function they performed. Uh, Were these they, only uh, nouns that change, or verbs? Both. Both and, nouns. And adjectives, verbs. too. Yeah. Uh, a a everything was changed, so it was a heavily inflected language. You say uh, that still occurs in modern German? Oh, yes. What's an example in modern German of that kind of inflection? Well, das feine Buch. The fine book, the yeah. good man, the good man, uh, the the interesting wand, uh, the interesting wall, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or uh, any number of those, and uh, so each one of those you say die Frau, der Mann, das Kind, yeah. uh, you even say das Mädchen, the the girl, because she has a C H E N on it, so it's a neuter noun. So it really doesn't have to do with gender as much as what we call gender in mm -hmm. language. And uh, so every word in German has to have some gender. Sometimes between dialects you will argue as whether it's die Butter, which is standard German, or yeah. der Butter, all those from South Germany will forgive me. Uh, so you argue back and forth about these occasions, but every word has a gender assignment. Well, what about the cases uh, that Andrew was talking about before? Well, there are four of those in modern German. So you say der Mann, for example, des Mannes, die Mann, or die Manne, if you want to, and but den Mann. For accusative. So you yeah. have uh, nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative in the order. Yeah, des manus is genitive, right. Right. belonging to the belonging man. Belonging to the right. man. Yeah. De is to or of the man, and, right. uh, an indirect object, and den man would be the direct object. Lord, yes. how do German kids ever learn it? <laughs> well, uh, getting back to Chomsky, you see. Uh, yeah, of course. It, it's amazing, but there, uh, you could argue there is something innate. We were born to learn it. You would be even more impressed at Eskimo kids, I think, because uh, Eskimo is a uh, incredibly agglutinated yeah. language, and you can have a, a word just stringing out bigger and bigger and bigger, and it would have to translate into a whole paragraph in we, English. We still react with some surprise, even though we think we're fairly sophisticated. I got on an elevator just the other day, and uh, along came a woman with uh, a Japanese woman uh, with two little children, uh, I think about three years old and four years old, one male and one female. And they were prattling away in Japanese, and my immediate reaction was, what bright little kids? <laughs> <laughs> I had to stop and remind myself, it's their language, it's not mine. Yeah. Uh, but English loses, as you move even from Old English to Middle English, and certainly as you move on to Modern English, it loses a lot of that complexity, doesn't it? It simplifies. Yeah. That is correct. And curiously enough, uh, the uh, direction in which English has moved in the course of these changes in the last thousand years or so has been uh, toward a kind of grammar that is more like Chinese.
Really? I've uh, never heard that. Than Germanic. How so? Uh, well, uh, in Chinese, uh, you have, uh, if, as I understand it, no inflections at all. Essentially, words simply do not change form. Uh, uh, you have uh, three pronouns, for example, wonita, uh, uh, and uh, they are simply first, second, third person. And whether they are singular or plural, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Whether they are subject or object or indirect object, it doesn't matter. They simply retain the same form. And it is... Wool, I gather, is, first per is singular. Wool. D does it change... Uh, the plural? No. It doesn't change in the plural. No. Uh, does it change... Uh, does it re do you get a reflection of the same changes we have between I and me? No. What was I and it's no, also me? No, you see, in, in English, we still have a, uh, a, a remnant of this inflectional system yeah. in the pronouns. Uh, but in Chinese, they don't even have that. So they're even simpler, I see. That's right. And so y you simply put together words in Chinese, like ch uh, checkers, you know, mm -hmm. uh, string them together, and uh, context will tell you whether you mean singular or plural or past or present, though there are particles you can add. Uh, to specifically say uh, I, plural, but you don't usually well, it sounds use like those. Chinese has gone uh, still further along the line towards ultimate simplification. Yes, or, or it, I don't know if it's gone there or always was there. Always I don't know there. anything about uh, uh, the history yeah. of the Chinese language. But there's an but extra dimension in Chinese that we don't have, isn't there? And that's yes. intonational yes. differences Chinese which convey is a, meaning. Is a tone language, which is something we consider to be exceedingly exotic until we uh, are humbled by learning that most of the languages in the world are tone languages. We're the exception. Let's explain what a tone language is. Uh, a tone language is generally, we generally think of a tone language as being uh, a language that has lexical meaning attached to the tones because all languages have tones. English has tones and in Yiddish, for you can say and so it's a lot different according to or the intonation. With, uh, chicken. Yeah, yeah, but we should distinguish <laughs> you know between story. pitch and tone. I think they're two different yeah. things. And yeah, and uh, so what we're we're talking about here is the distinction is a lexical distinction. That yeah. is, you can tell the difference between words in a language like Lithuanian, Chinese, sometimes Swedish. You can have minimal pairs, in other words, which are distinguished only by the tone. For example, well. Uh, the famous example one always gives from Chinese is ma, ma. And uh, so if you want to say, how are you in Chinese, you say ni hao ma. And you cannot say ni hao ma. <laughs> uh, it would make no sense. And so, uh, but that's true of, of some Indo-European languages. You say this happens in Swedish and Lithuanian as well. Swedish and Lithuanian and a number of others. In Lithuanian, if you listen to Lithuanian spoken on the street in Lithuania, it's kind of interesting because it sounds a lot like sometimes a chant. You say things like one of the famous sentences you say is Kastusuro, suris, what's the sourness of that cheese? And uh, you, you, suro and suris, uh, but that even happens in Serbo-Croatian, for example. You, you say toyoskup, oh, that's expensive. And it sounds right, except it's the tone that's... You, so you have tones even in uh, Slovenian, for example, as a, as a tone language. Well, to what extent do we do this in English itself? Well, we I don't, don't think we have tones in English. We no. have intonation. Yeah, we have we have differences in uh, in pitch, 
Uh, and, uh, well, some classic examples. There is a difference between uh, um, a light housekeeper and a lighthouse keeper, for example. Yes, there and, is indeed. And, yeah. and th those, those are pitch and stress differences. But uh, if it were Chinese, for example, uh, if you said light, 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 <laughs> and so on, these would be totally different words. Mm -hmm. uh, and this you simply cannot do in English. Have you noticed something lately in the use of American English? You're talking about adolescent speech. I think mm -hmm. the adolescents, even as they grow into their 20s, uh, many of them continue to do this. It drives me crazy, absolutely up the wall, and I've complained about it a few times on the air. It's a way of speaking English so that uh, instead of ending a sentence uh, this way, you end it this way. And, oh, yes, uh, I've noticed that. There's, there's, there's a lengthening and waxing at the end. I, I think I, have, I hear this mainly in uh, adolescent and young Midwestern women. I don't. I've, I haven't heard any male well, I heard say in men that. Too. I had some Have business you? dealings with a young man who was a banker, and I had to meet with him for two afternoons. And he was educated. He was uh, had a, 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 an MBA, I imagine. And he mm -hmm. was driving me crazy. Until I told him, <laughs> stop, inf stop uh, doing that uh, rising inflection. Rising inflection at the end of every sentence. It just isn't really good English speech, and it drives the listener crazy. Well, he said, you "Thank you very much." <laughs> <laughs> Mencken and uh, and McDavid both attribute that to Southern influence. Yeah, I think it's, it probably... Uh, it's very common down yeah. south to indicate uncertainty. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh, th the, these are the odd little things that develop. I suppose they develop in all languages. Certain mm -hmm. strange oh, usages, yeah. you don't know where they come from or why in the world they persist, but they do. Well, it's the business of sociolinguistics, I guess, to trace those things mm -hmm. down. Uh, they have to originate somewhere. We um, must pause. Anybody want to do uh, the commercials or announce the commercials in yet another language? Do it in Hungarian. No. Nem tudom, az igazán beszélni. That's worth pausing for some commercials or something like uh, that? No, what I just said, I don't really know how to say that correctly. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got me. My Hungarian is not very good, as you can tell. I don't know how you say commercial in Hungarian. <laughs> uh, entrepreneurial modules is the term I use when I want to fancy it up in English. So we pause for some entrepreneurial modules, and we'll be right back after this. We are talking about language, as we are linguistifying about language tonight, <laughs> with Andrew Schiller and James Marchand. In about 10 or 12 minutes, we'll be on to the phones. The number is, as ever, 591-7200. And the lines are open at this moment, 591-7200. The area code, of course, is 312 if you're calling uh, long distance. Uh, Andrew made reference earlier to uh, the natural and easy adaptability of all infants as uh, they become neonates and toddlers to the languages that surround them. Uh, all uh, human beings as mm. toddlers in some kind of uh, functioning social group acquire the language of that group. And you said also, if there are two, or you could have added, if there are three languages three going at the same time, Three or four, nobody knows the limits. They'll pick them all up at the same time easily. I grew so up in a quadrilingual area. And are you quadrilingual to this Not moment? Not anymore, but I was. But you once were. Yes. And I was bilingual, as I was bragging a moment before, but there's nothing to brag about, though one of those languages has decayed a good deal through disuse, though I've picked up some other Indo-European languages, and though I like to uh, flaunt them sometimes, but obviously I don't speak French or German like a native would. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's much interest in acquiring other languages, and there are all kinds of people who have all kinds of systems for helping adults to uh, become fluent in French or Spanish or Romanche or, 
or Swahili <laughs> or what have you within a week, particularly if you <coughs> put the cassette in your car every day and oh, yeah. pay close attention. Hypnopedia, uh, put it under your pillow and you'll know or that. warning. Well, yeah. what about that? What are the outer limits for easy acquisition of language? Is there some age beyond which yes. acquiring a second or third language becomes di especially difficult? Yes. Uh, we go through phases, and uh, the first phase of the human development is essentially devoted to language learning. And somewhere along the line, um, at adolescence, uh, we cease to become language learners and we become sexual creatures. And from that point on, and it, it's, it varies a few years one way and another depending on the individual, uh, you do not learn language spontaneously anymore. You just don't. And you have to learn it the hard way. Well, when it comes to the various hard ways, what's the easiest of the hard ways? Suppose at this advanced age I wanted to learn Swahili of which I know not a word. Uh, I've lately become very interested in African popular music, which I think I is know wonderful one word. stuff. Well, I know one <laughs> or two also that I've picked up. Which one do you know? Missouri, uh, which means a long goodbye. <laughs> but suppose I wanted to learn Swahili. I've, I've chosen a language which is not an Indo-European language, so I've right. got no base for it at all. How would, what would be the best way to go about it? Well, I, I would think you would want to do two things. One, get a good Swahili grammar, like, for example, Polomay's grammar of Swahili is a very good one. You would want to probably get some tapes of Swahili so you could hear it spoken mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But Swahili being a very rationally organized language, you would find that you could use your facility better than a child could. Uh, for example, uh, if you take any Swahili word like Nina uh, Sema uh, means I speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if I say to you, Nina Sema means I speak, you say, aha, Nina means I and Sema means speak. Uh, and I can say uh, Nina Ona, uh, and I see, and Nina means I, and Ona means see. Uh, then if I say Nilisema, I used to speak, you all of a sudden reorganize that, and you say, aha, Ni means I, and Na means present tense. So you can organize very huge things like Ni Takapiki's Wa, I shall cause being hit, and uh, you have a causative passive in Swahili, which is a strange sort of thing. If you think about the uses that Swahili has been put to over the years, that doesn't surprise you the same way that it doesn't surprise you to find that Kimbo uh, that Bhojpuri um, um, has a double causative. To have somebody have your clothes washed is because Bhojpuri is essentially the language of servants. But isn't this rationality and orderliness of Swahili partly a result of its being a kind of lingua franca, and almost an artificial language? I think certainly that it, it's because of the fact that it's lingua franca and, and again, almost an artificial language, although there are many varieties of yeah. Swahili, like you can say ki and ch, and it's also uh, because of uh, the structure of the uh, Bantu languages mm -hmm. and the mm. tremendous number of influences, like, for example, the word for book in Swahili is kitabu. Mm -hmm. uh, so oh, that's Arabic. It, it's an yeah. Arabic word, and since everything mm. in, uh, having to do with human beings starts with an m, the word for scholars, mtabu. I begin to get the impression from what you're saying about Swahili that it is really the Esperanto of sub-Saharan Africa. That is Africa. correct. That's certainly it was put together, that was is it, correct. from various other languages. That is right. How interesting. Well, it, it has a basis of its own. Uh, we don't want to say it was totally put together, but it's become a trade language. And but so it's, it's very, very orderly. Very orderly. It's neat. 
uh, unlike, say, Navajo. Yeah. <laughs> but the basic question of how you acquire it as an adult... Well, I think there are two things. One, you've got to mimic it. That is, in other words, you need to get yourself a tape and listen to it and get the sounds in your ear yeah. and out of your mouth and so forth. This is not so hard to do for an adult. And then the next thing is you've got to analyze it. And so you can use the ability that we adults have, that children don't have, to analyze the language, and that will help you along the way of learning it. What do you think, though, of um, the immersion system? You know that in Israel, when they take new immigrants, they throw them into centers where they've got to first acquire the language, and very often uh, they go three or four months without being allowed to use any words from their native language, at least when they're with other people. Yeah, and it can be very painful, but supposedly it produces rather quick language learning. The problem with that is how many of us know people who have lived in America for 50 years and don't have a good mastery of yes. the English language? Mm -hmm. So immersion helps some people, and it doesn't help others. Most of this as we said just a minute ago, is an individual matter. Yeah, there, I don't think there is any panacea, though there is a lot of quackery in the business. And uh, everywhere you go, you are uh, <coughs> bombarded with advertisements uh, telling you that they will teach you Spanish, German, anything well, you in you the world. Just remember that you're wearing socks on your feet. <laughs> That's right. S-O-C-K-S. And, uh, you know, and ten easy lessons or five hard ones. Uh... But there are differences. Uh, this is demonstrated in terms of research in linguistic facility between oh, people, yes. which are not necessarily completely correlated with mere differences in so-called general intelligence. Oh, no. As a matter of fact, language learning has nothing to do with intelligence. All infants learn their language, whether yeah. they're going to grow up to be geniuses or just ordinary folks. Um, and, and in fact... Uh, Adult language learning facility, as far as I've been able to observe, has nothing to do with anything else either. Uh, not all linguists are good at learning languages, and lots of people who are good at learning languages are not linguists. In, in the old days, when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, so was James Marchand, a graduate student at the University of Michigan. I've only just now discovered this. You must have known Kenneth Pike even better than I did. Oh, yeah. And there was a man who had an amazing <coughs> facility, as mm -hmm. I'm sure you saw demonstrated often. He would take native speakers, uh, do a demonstration with a native speaker of some language he uh, didn't know anything about, and within an hour he was speaking that language to that native speaker. I saw him do that once with a fellow from the Philippines, uh, the language being Tagalog. Right. Uh, how did Pike do that? It wasn't merely a matter of his intuitive skills. He had some sort of method. Well, I think a lot of it was intuitive skills, but also method, that is, Pike, uh, was not himself a good mimic, as you may know if you saw him do any of these things. Mm -hmm. And most of the people we think who learn languages well are good mimics. In other words, Pike was not particularly a good, if he's hearing me right now, I hope he'll forgive me, not <laughs> a good learner of languages, but he was a good linguist. He was a good analyzer of language. And he would begin to analyze something like Swahili immediately. He would claim that he could do that, he could establish communication in 45 minutes. Of course, you would wonder whether he would then retain those languages or merely entertain them for the hour or so of the demonstration and then let them fall into the discard. It's hard to say because people like Pike and Nida have amazing storehouses of knowledge mm -hmm. of languages in right. their heads. And that's another thing. If you know enough languages, uh, languages don't seem to be so so strange. Is that it? true? When you've learned your tenth language, then you really begin to get the hang of So they tell me. Yeah, if you're looking for something like, let's say, uh, an exclusive we to tell a story that Pike used to like to tell. Mm -hmm. There was a missionary over in Pohnpei where they have an exclusive we, 
and he was preaching, uh, bringing the message, and he was saying, we're all going to hell, and the audience was applauding and, and <laughs> very excited, and he thought, well, I'm really bringing the message, but he was really saying, we missionaries, but not you people in the audience. No. And so you get used to looking for certain features of language. And, what uh, you've just mentioned uh, requires some further explanation. Kenneth Pike came to his great interest in comparative linguistics and into structural linguistics by virtue of his religious commitments. Right. Yeah, and uh, and started the Summer Institute in Linguistics. He and Gene Nida both, and mm. those are, were both great learners of language, uh, started out in the same way. To teach and missionaries. And also did Gleason. To right. teach uh, young at the, at people the Hartford going to be Academy. Uh, th that's where Gleason was. Yeah. And, but the uh, idea was to teach them a method of how to acquire the native language once they went off to Fiji or right. wh wherever. Right. Yes, and ultimately to translate the scriptures into their language. Yeah. And, uh, and develop a d uh, an alphabet if they needed one. Right. So uh, religious commitment and ambition has had a great deal to do with pushing modern linguistic science forward. I should certainly think so, and uh, I think uh, all kinds of religious commitments, because a religious commitment is a a, a strong uh, yeah. urge in certain directions, and if it turns towards linguistics, then it's very good. Uh, I had Pike for two classes, and uh, I must say that uh, although his overt religion never came into class, you could see that he was certainly interested in the subject. He was a very intense man. I once got yeah. trapped in a water polo game with him. I think he <laughs> sort of talked me into it. And he was ferocious in the swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. uh, we must pause for some commercials, and then we will go directly on to the telephones. So uh, get your calls in. Well, if you try right now, I fear you will run into a busy signal. All the lines are taken. But do, by all means, try again uh, at the same number, 591-7200, and uh, make your try again right after we say goodnight to some prior caller. Five nine one seven two zero zero. Onto your calls to Andrew Schiller and James Marchand directly after these words. Our conversation has elicited a great deal of interest, and so uh, we will go directly to the phones after I quickly reintroduce the guests. They are James Marchand, professor of linguistics and comparative literature at the University of Illinois Urbana, and Andrew Schiller, who is professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois Chicago. Our phone number five nine one seven two zero zero. Anything you want to ask about language and its origins and its nature and its acquisition uh, and the various uh, families of language and how they have developed, uh, you are free to do so. We'll go directly to the first caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello. I had two questions, uh, the first of which pertain to uh, the spread of American English in world commerce and the second of which uh, pertain to the uh, spread of Southernisms in uh, uh, American English, as exemplified by the uh, ending of sentences uh, that are though they're interrogative. Well, we were just talking about that earlier. Uh, about the second point, which is a little lighter and more fun. Yeah. Maybe both are equally fun. Um, what would be the mechanisms, or what would explain, or why has uh, have aspects of Southern English, which is kind of a minority and certainly marginalized in some ways, cultural area? spread to the larger uh, American uh, dialectology? Probably uh, a longing for the pastoral. We still think of the <laughs> South as somehow uh, the provincial world, don't we? Or yeah. CB radio. I don't know what, what, oh, what that's ideas. It. Yes, that's interesting. In CB radio, they all affect a kind of uh, southern good old boy sort of speech. I always heard that was due to uh, uh, Chuck Yeager and his uh, West Virginia inland southern uh, 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 
speech. Well, uh, what I heard was that uh, that uh, airline pilots were affected by Jaeger and all right. imitated Jaeger on their pronouncements on the intercom. Uh, to but let's turn to the guests who know much more about this than I do. Well, uh, James Marshan. It's interesting that, uh, of course, there's been a great deal of mobility. Southerners moved north during the war to work in Detroit, or Detroit as we call it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, of course, black English is based a great deal in the South. These uh, Many of the blacks came from the South and, and go back and forth now. And uh, many Southerners, I, for example, am from Tennessee, uh, moved uh, to the North. And also there's an interesting sort of phenomenon. I don't know how to put it. Uh, the good old boy phenomenon is what we might call it so that all the sergeants in the army, be they from Brooklyn or from Tennessee, spoke a southern accent. Uh, so uh, saying things like, you in deep trouble, boy, mm -hmm. was uh, <laughs> the standard thing for the sergeants to say. Not only that, but it seems to be a convention that uh, pop music is sung with a southern dialect, even in Britain. Even the Rolling Stones, right. Or, or even the, the uh, uh, Beatles. The Beatles, uh, right. you know. Yeah, so it has it has become a kind of international pop American. Curious, but you don't have any final explanation for why that might be the case. No, English is no longer the possession of England and America, two countries that are separated by the same language. Yeah. Uh, it's really the possession of the world, and so that we no longer can mm. can decide what is to be said and what is not. And it's uh, also products from the United States, like for example, computers. Uh, when I taught computer science in Germany, uh, my students asked me to quit saying things like Schnittstelle for <laughs> interface, and they said, but sagen Sie lieber Interface, Herr Professor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, to one more anecdote, I'm, I'm very good at anecdotes, that's about the only thing that I'm good at. Uh, uh, when I was in Sweden, uh, the word for zipper in Sweden is blixlos. Uh, <laughs> I was with a friend of mine, and I wanted to buy a pair of pants, and I wanted to get a pair with a zipper, and I said, how do you say, uh, you say my zipper for Svenska? And he said, oh, you true, we say a zipper. <laughs> <laughs> so we are, uh, there are some bad aspects to this, too. Uh, it's nice for an American <laughs> to say, well, we're beginning to, to dominate the, the languages. But also, <coughs> languages are losing certain things that they already have words for. Uh, f uh, for example, uh, in, in mm. German or in Swedish, you will see words that are just uh, uh, regular old ordinary English words used for words that they already have. Of course, some languages or some elites within particular uh, linguistic communities struggle very hard against such tendencies. The French Academy oh, is yeah. officially appointed or officially instructed to prevent the corruption of the French language by any other languages, but they are particularly vigilant against Anglicisms entering French. And whether they've succeeded or not, I don't know. My impression is they don't. That's the general impression. <laughs> that they, <laughs> well, that's the problem. You can accuse people of speaking Franglais and win points, but mostly everyone speaks it. Yeah, yeah. And you, on, on the Champs-Élysées, you get a hamburger. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Rather than whatever the French <laughs> would be. 591-7200 is the number. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, Latin being the written language of the Roman world, what was the, uh, that's what we study in, in high schools and college, and it's a written language. What was the spoken language of the Roman world? And I'll hang up and let your people discuss it. All right. Well, actually, that's been reconstructed by classical scholars, hasn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of argument about it. There, there may be, oh, a hundred books on the question of what was the spoken language like. 
And the question is whether it was like our reconstructed proto-romance, which it probably wasn't like, or was it like all kinds of varieties of spoken English? It's the same problem you see all the time when some language develops out of some other language. We usually argue about what was the specific point, like where did modern German originate? Was it in the dialects around Meissen and so forth? And usually there is no answer. One of the great, uh, to oversimplify, one of the great questions around which people have argued for some time concerning spoken Latin during the uh, years of the Roman Empire is whether the uh, mid-word C gets a hard or a soft pronunciation, whether Mm -hmm. it's K or S. Mm -hmm. And... uh, but I think in the main now, the prevailing view on the part of scholars is that it's a hard pronunciation, a well, K like K. That's the next problem, though, where and when. That is, do you mean that all Romans said K for Cicero? Did some say S for Cicero? Some say C, Cicero, uh, or some say Ch, Cicero. And so it may be that we are stuck in the situation that we just don't know these things. The first time, <laughs> for example, that we have an assimilation, if of Latin T before an I, like calcio, is in a Gothic, in a loan word into Gothic. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's in the 6th century. So it's very hard to know when and where these things, obviously it got spread all over the place, so people up in Germany who were speaking Latin were going to speak it differently than those who yeah. were. Yes, yeah, so that's the point. The Roman Empire was very widespread and lasted a long time. There's no reason. Uh, it, it would be incredible if they did all pronounce it the same way. Uh, a, but all the same, one can ask, what was the language uh, like as spoken in Rome at the height of the empire or you know, in, in the court of Nero or something of the, like mm-hmm. that? Well, that's a reconstruction job, and those things are always a little dubious. Yeah. Uh, a, a friend of mine who is a classic scholar says, well, you can do a good deal with poetry, because the rhyming schemes in poetry tell you something about the sound rhyme. values. didn't rhyme. Well, some poetry apparently did. No, uh, Latin poetry didn't rhyme. Never at all? There was alliteration, well, though, in early Latin. Maybe that, was, maybe that was the mechanism Ennius, he was for example, about. wrote in alliterative poetry. Yeah. But another point that I've heard made, I don't know whether there's anything to this at all, uh, is that there are some surviving la- languages which are probably closer to Latin, both in their actual structure, but also in their mode of pronunciation, than are yet other Romance languages. Sure. And the two that are named most commonly are Romanian and Romanche, that language it's spoken in the canton of Graubünden in Switzerland. And I think there are only maybe 20,000 native speakers of Romanche in all the world. Uh, but that apparently has received a good deal of attention, hasn't it, in terms of scholarly analysis? Well, when, when people say things like that, I think what they're t- talking about is that there are a considerable number of features which have been retained. It is not quite the same thing as saying that a speaker of Romanche, if he were teleported back in time, would be understood at the Roman Forum of a thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago. Um, It's it's very much the same as saying that uh, modern Lithuanian uh, is a very conservative language and retains more features that we see in ancient Sanskrit than any other European language. That is true, but uh, speakers of Sanskrit and Lithuanian I don't think are mutually comprehensible. And the problem Mm -hmm. is it's much like saying that Elizabethan English is spoken in the southern highlands where I come from. Uh, It means some features are retained as, for example, you you look at, uh, at Romanian, you mentioned the word for language in Romanian is limbul the language. And there, the 
G-U-A has become mm-hmm. B. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, a lot of tremendous changes have occurred in uh, Romanian between Romanian and Latin. It's just that so you decide maybe to accentuate this one or that one. And, and Nun, wir kommen bald zurück. <laughs> After these commercials. There is now one line available. If you've been trying to get through and experiencing nothing but frustration, do try again. 591-7200, the number, as we return to Andrew Schiller and James Marshan, two of the leading linguistic scientists in the area, and back to your calls for them on 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes, um, thank you for taking my call. I would like to ask my question in two different ways. Mm-hmm. The first is, has, has the, uh, the utterance of religious tongue-speaking been studied, and uh, if so, does it have the characteristic of real language? The second way I'd like to ask that, is there anything discernible to the ear that is common to all real language that, dis- that distinguishes it from nonsense speaking? Uh, you're talking about speaking in tongues, as the uh, Correct. fundamentalists and evangelicals call it. Correct. It's a phenomenon that has been studied in recent years by uh, linguistics uh, <laughs> scholars, has it not? Yes, there's a very large bibliography on glossolalia, as we linguists call it. Uh, linguists always like to make up Greek words. And uh, so uh, it has been studied, and it's, a, of course, a very large... It, it uh, sweeps over a large area of linguistics, that is, some people who are speaking in tongues just repeat phonemes over and over again or just phonating. Some people use a large inventory of phonemes and a large inventory of words. Uh, and there is a parallel phenomenon called xenoglossia, the ability to speak foreign languages without ever having heard them. Uh, is that an ability that's ever been really demonstrated? N- no, I don't think it's ever been really demonstrated, although it was the woman who spoke Swedish <laughs> that uh, this was supposed to have been demonstrated with, but uh, no one ever ran into her, ever talked to her. Uh, so I think that, uh, th- but the phenomenon has been studied intensively. Uh, and it ranges over a large range of linguistic abilities. What's a, what, what's a, a typical sound stream that is glossolalia like? Would you say? Well, uh, I don't know. Balarama kanasasasasa. Well, all of these things are typical. Kind of, that is the the sort of things that one uses in chanting are typical in glossolalia. No. But also uh, in glossolalia, one has things that are typical of languages, words that one can distinguish. And uh, uh, so that sometimes they're just repetitive sequences. Uh, sometimes they are, are words that are distinguishable. Uh, and uh, they can be quite ramified uh, and structured. Uh, so it According to religious interpretation, uh, in sects and uh, denominations that believe in the gift of tongues and uh, speaking in tongues, these are, uh, the, kind of, the language being spoken is supposed to be some ancient lost language. Is that right? Many times, that is, Pentecostals themselves differ in what the language, that is, this is called a Pentecostal movement because it was at Pentecost that the gift of tongues came. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is to decide, uh, uh, anyway, Pentecostals themselves have different views of the language that comes through one, uh, whether or not it is an ancient lost language, some believe this, Sometimes, it, as I said, it's a matter of xenoglossia, and uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated, uh, on which several books have been written. Would the uh, glossolalia of an English speaker differ from the glossolalia of a speaker of another language? One would imagine so, but 
uh, one doesn't know. Sometimes uh, in glossolalia, sounds are produced which are not in the native language. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that's been demonstrated over and over again, that people will produce sounds that, let's say, they can't normally produce, like a, a H initially, uh -huh. and uh, 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 many, many things like this. Uh, glossolalia, by the way, although uh, it's a phenomenon of Pentecostals, is not limited to Pentecostals. The... Uh, the uh, um, ghost dance religion uh, among the American Indians uh, had glossolalia. So this is a, a, a not purely, uh, oh, how should we say it, it's, a, it's a purely a religious matter, I guess, but it's not a purely uh, Pentecostal or Christian matter. Our thanks to the caller. Uh, you can also use it in entertainment. Um, there was a fellow in Europe years ago who called himself Beethoven. It was Beethoven without the E-N at the end, mm -hmm. and he was an entertainer, and he had the great skill of talking all sorts of other Indo-European languages, none of which he really was speaking. But he managed to capture the cadence and the sound of them. Do you remember Double Talk? Remind me of Double Talk. I, I cannot reproduce it, but uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, there were some entertainers who would just talk a yes. stream, and you would swear that, you know, this is sensible English, but the more you listen to it, the less sense it made. With an occasional real word showing up. Yeah, and in fact, uh, as I recall, Charlie Chaplin, in one of his movies, was oh. uh, talking and singing in some generalized uh, European non-language. Well, in The Great Dictator, he talks pseudo-German. Well, and, and uh, Henry Morgan used to be famous for the number of different languages that he did, as you were saying. Uh, so Henry Morgan did a very creditable German, but it wasn't German at all. Mm -hmm. And it just sounded very German, and you would believe it was German if you were in the next room. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, uh, an interesting thing is in The Girl from Jones Beach, uh, Ronald Reagan himself mm -hmm. had <laughs> a marvelous accent, which, as uh, his co-star said, wandered all over the globe. What was he supposed to have been? Uh, one doesn't know because he was just an American and he was trying to sound like a foreigner oh, I see. in order to get a date with this uh, uh -huh. uh, teacher of English for foreigners. It's not, it's not a film that I've seen. <laughs> uh, 591-7200 is the number. 591-7200, uh, good evening, you're on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, given the many uh, nationalities in the United States presently, if we the panel and myself, would be transported in time 500, 1,000 years, 1,500 years in the future, and we're listening to Extension 720, would we be able to understand what they were saying? An excellent question. Um, well, if we had listened, if they did Extension 720 back in Chaucer's London, and we listened to yeah. it now, would we be able to understand <coughs> it? You'd, you'd have a problem. A thousand years is a long time in the evolution of a language. Uh, if you're talking about a thousand years, the answer is you probably wouldn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you remind me of a line I used to use on my students to kind of wake them up, and I said, we are now in this room speaking a dead language, <laughs> which is true. I mean, sooner or later, there will be people who call themselves speakers of English who will not be able to uh, understand. But let me raise a capital. Let me raise a counterpoint. Isn't it possible that with the kind of mass and worldwide communication we've got, that you'll get greater regularity and greater persistence if only because uh, the system, the linguistic system is reinforced on a thousand different sides? Uh, should that, should the kind of communicative systems we've got now 
facilitate the more rapid change of language, or rather, should it retard the change of language? I think what happens is, as things develop, uh, taking English, for example, the word broadcast had only the meaning of to broadcast seed until Lee DeForest came along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now it doesn't have that meaning at all anymore. So the rapid development of new artifacts, new interpretations of the world, new everything, leads us into any number of, of directions that uh, really actually... Um, accelerate the development of uh, a different language. Because it does depend as well, I suppose, upon who <coughs> conquers and who dominates uh, uh, whom. Right. One remembers that wonderful novel by Anthony Burgess, uh, The Clockwork Orange, yes. A Clockwork Orange, the is that the title? Orange, yes. In which we've got an England which has been dominated by, uh, invaded by and dominated by the Soviet Union. The world didn't quite turn out that way, thank God. <laughs> but the English that they speak is a Russified English. Yeah. Wonderfully invented by Burgess. Yeah, and, and I think the problem is that uh, given all these different dialects and different languages in the United States, they will ultimately, I think, get assimilated. The problem is that, uh, as we pointed out, as Engl uh, a thousand years English will have developed to such an extent that people wouldn't understand it, the same as it's developed since Chaucer. Well, I suppose it's true that if you look at any language that we have in the world today and can track it back, particularly if it has a written literature to a thousand years earlier, you find that it's always a middle Spanish or a middle German or a middle something a thousand years ago rather than contemporary. Yeah. So middle high German is not understandable. or Old Spanish, for example, is not really understandable no. to modern Spanish speakers. And that's why we, we teach courses like Old Spanish. Well, the English of the year 983 is Old English, Anglo-Saxon. It's not Middle English. Yeah, a thousand years ago. It would be quite ago. incomprehensible. Yeah. There are, such, there are so many other interesting subsidiary questions. I know one that's been argued a great deal is what did Elizabethan English sound like? By then it's English that, as written, we can quite clearly comprehend, though some words have shifted mm -hmm. their value. But uh, how was it pronounced? Well, um, again, it's a reconstruction problem, but... Uh, a, a sort of shorthand way of putting it, or at least some people have done this, is to say that it probably sounds more like modern Irish than anything else. Irish accent of English. Yeah. Yes, not, not, not uh, Celtic. Not Gaelic. Or Gaelic. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the way to put it, I suppose, more properly is that the, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, features of Renaissance English... Uh, were retained in Ireland because, uh, well, it's an island for one thing and because it uh, is politically oppressed and is a very conservative linguistic area, uh, as is Scotland, uh, too. One has to think then of Hamlet saying, oh, that this too, too solid flesh should melt, thaw, and dissolve itself into a dew. Sure. <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine. Well, there are all kinds of problems with that. Even the line you gave, one doesn't know whether that's solid flesh or solid, or solid. flesh. That's true. It's sometimes and you have the problem. Yeah, and many of the pronunciations we just really can't make much more than just sort of an approximation yeah. at. Uh, Helga Kirkeritz came to very strong conclusions in his book on Shakespeare's pronunciation, on Elizabethan pronunciation. Yes, but his and reconstruction had a German accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's, a, he's a German, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Scandinavian. Yeah, uh -huh. Dane, I think. Um, 
We've got to stop once again. Commercials are overdue, and also we've now got a number of lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, we've now got uh, two whole lines, possibly three, available to you, so move quickly. 591-7200, the number 591-7200. We're discussing the history of, the origins of, the nature of language tonight with Andrew Schiller, professor of linguistics at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and James Marchand, professor of linguistics and comparative literature at the University of Illinois, Urbana. And we'll go directly back to your comments and questions. You are on the air. Good evening. About the English uh, verbs, they're different from, like, German verbs, where German says, I go, English says, I am going, I do go. I heard once, well, I read once, something on that this is the influence of the previous Celtic languages in Britain. Is that true? I wouldn't be surprised that the... uh, uh, use of of such things as I am going uh, might have something to do with the Celtic languages because that's exactly as Irish does it today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that in, in Irish, many of what we would consider to be verbs start with tom, I am, and then you have the verbal noun. Uh, so... Um, in the do I. Yeah, right. And so uh, you say in, in Irish, you say, what's this picture on the wall show? And you say, what is it to it showing this picture? And so uh, these these periphrastic tenses that came up in English uh, um, perhaps owe something to the Celtic influence, perhaps don't. We have interesting ones in, in French that do somewhat the same, same way. Of course, that translates over into English forms as spoken by native Irish, or at least as their playwrights represent them. What is it that you'd be thinking now? Yeah. Is, or people is say after thinking, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and so But no other German, uh, Germanic language has that, do they? I am going, I do go. No, no. I don't think so. I can't no, think can of one that say, does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the Scandinavian languages, it's the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Ma'am, uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Interesting query. 591-7200 is the number. Here's the next caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Yes. Particularly to Jim Marchand, <laughs> under whom I studied in Urbana. Uh-huh. I, I have two questions. Uh, since English has become the lingua franca of our time, why is it important for English speakers to study foreign languages? And second, uh, what is the most persuasive argument on behalf of uh, public funding of foreign language education programs? Thank you. <laughs> That's an inflammatory question. <laughs> I'll take the uh, <laughs> second one first. Uh, the The problem with uh, bilingual education, I take it that is the sense of your question. Well, you're saying why bother since Engl- English now dominates the world? Why bother yeah. learning anything else? Well, that was the first question. Mm-hmm. But then he asked the question about public funding. Oh, yes. Uh, and I'm addressing myself first to that. And uh, I think uh, this gets mixed up with all kinds of political, ethnic, emotional problems. People do not want their ethnic heritage destroyed and so forth, which is a uh, considerable turnabout from a couple of generations ago when everybody wanted to be an American. And children were ashamed of their parents because they didn't speak proper English and they changed their names and anglicized them and so forth. Uh, So the political pressures have arisen from uh, these differences in in social attitude. 
But uh, I think the fact remains that English is and is going to remain the dominant language in this country for a good long time. And anybody who does not learn English is going to be uh, under a severe social handicap. But it seems to me you're under, if you're a fairly educated person, you're under uh, a kind of cultural handicap if you haven't at least partially mastered some other languages. Well, that that's the point of his first Yeah, uh, that, that's, the one, that's the one that I'm, mm. I'm responding to. Yeah. Um, the most obvious answer would be simply say in terms of literature. Mm-hmm. No matter how high the art of translation is perfected, uh, most serious poets, and for that matter even great novelists, cannot be as fully appreciated in uh, translation as they can in their own language. A best case in point would be Marcel Proust. You can read Remembrance of Things Past. There have been many good English translations, but if you read it in the French, uh, it has a very different kind of nuance. And since Proust is an author of nuance and uh, sort of the evanescence mm-hmm. of, uh, of the flow of the stream of consciousness, um, it, uh, if you can do them in French, even if you have to do it with a pony, with an English translation uh, at the other side of the table, it's well worth doing. Well, um, and also it's in the national interest to learn foreign languages. If, for example, you're dealing across the table with someone who knows German and English, and you only know English, you're at a great disadvantage. Uh, they can discuss all kinds of things with each other, or uh, with any foreign language. Just making I shouldn't have picked German as an example. Uh, but it's, it's quite important to learn foreign languages. Also, it's not true, as people will sometimes tell us, that everything is translated. Uh, I almost daily receive calls from friends who are in, let's say, chemistry, physics. Could you help me translate this paper? Uh, and you, I always say to them, well, I remember when that last argument about the language requirement, you said everything was translated. I, I've got a, our thanks to the caller, I've got a great problem. There came to me a few months ago a book from Poland which has anthologized uh, three of my articles. It's a little thing in social psychology, and they had asked my permission originally in a letter that I got uh, from the University of Poznan, written in somewhat broken English. I gave that permission about four years ago, and then the volume has appeared. And they also have a long introduction, the two editors of this anthology, in which I find Rosenberg, in the Rosenberga, I guess that's something you do in inflecting names. Um, they, there are four or five pages they've written about uh, this work of mine, they've anthologized, I don't know a word of Polish. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd love to know what they're saying. I'm trying to find somebody who will translate uh, this stuff for me. Their comments, rather than my own articles. I assume that they did an adequate translation. Talking about the different structures of language, it's interesting you should mention Rosenberga because you used the genitive for the nominative in Polish of a personal name. And so uh, instead of saying Rosenberg did this, they say Rosenberg's did this, or uh, yeah. they're using the genitives. Uh-huh. It's a, 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 a Slavic languages. Russian does the same thing. Uh, we'll, go, uh, we'll go to commercials, I guess. A last quick round of those, and then right back to the phones. And right back to the telephones. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. I'm sure that my pronunciation of this is not going to be exactly right, but I understand that in Japanese, the word uh, they use for foreigner is gajin. It's generally rendered in English as G-A-J-I-N. Mm-hmm. And a couple weeks ago, I ran across a short article about the gypsies and their language, uh, Romani, and their word for foreigner, as rendered in English, is G-A-J-E, gauge or gaj. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is there some long-ago distant connection between Japanese and Romani, perhaps? 
Well, isn't uh, Romani, the language of the gypsies, uh, also an Indo-European language? Is, is it not de derived from Hindi or something? Yes. They, they come originally from India or Afghanistan, but are somewhere around there. So, yes, they sp speak uh, a variety of Sanskrit, if you will. But uh, Japanese is non-Indo-European, and uh, coincidences do occur, you know. Uh, I don't think it proves a thing. Uh, thank you, sir, for the call. But, you know, I haven't asked you something I should have earlier. What are the great language families? Indo-European is something we've <laughs> talked about in the main, but there are many other language stocks or families. Sino-Tibetan. Sino-Tibetan which is the, the Chinese, origin of Tibetan, Chinese. Vietnamese, and so forth, mm -hmm. which is one group and probably has the greatest number of speakers of any Because of the population group. of China. Right. Yeah. And uh, the Semitic group, because... So that includes uh, Arabic and Hebrew and what else? Um, <clears throat> well, there are many kinds of, uh, of Arabic, actually. Yeah. And uh, that's th spread well over the world, so that, that accounts for a considerable number of mm -hmm. speakers. Uh, I think those are probably the, uh, the largest individual groups. Yeah, there? our Dravidian is very large because the population of India India, is so large. Yeah. Now, Dravidian is the language of South India, uh, uh, the various the, languages the of languages South India. That's non-Indo-European, though. Non-Indo-European language yeah. of South India. Like, uh... Well, Tamil, yeah. uh, Canada, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. a number of different languages like yeah. that. And uh, there's a tremendous um, number of speakers of these languages. Uh, but it, when you get to the smaller languages, there's Melanesian and Polynesian and... Polynesian and the very stocks of American Indian, which is not a good term for languages, that just indicates a geographical location. Yeah. And we usually have 12 stocks, like uh, Hokansuyan is one of the best-known ones, Algonquin. But, but they're unrelated to other, to other languages. They're unrelated uh, to each other, seemingly. Even to each other. And the languages of Africa, of sub-Saharan Africa. Same thing. Same, same problem. You have many of these that you can reconstruct. Some with uh, uh, various and sundry things like cliques and so on, mm -hmm. but uh, they also don't seem to go back to a common ancestor. Now, here's a caller who wants to know if I am properly informed, as I'm sure I am, about Finnish. Uh, go ahead, sir. That's correct. Uh, I'm a second-generation American on both sides, on my dad's side, Swedish, and on my mother's side, Finnish. And Swedes and Norwegians and Danes can understand each other, but... The Finnish language is totally different. Because apparently that's from yet another uh, small but old language stock called Finno-Ugaritic. Is that the name of it? Finno-Ugric. Ugric. Uh, the Swedes and Danes and Norwegians understand each other because they speak sister Germanic languages. Yeah. Finnish is a non-Indo-European language. It belongs to the Finnish group. It is uh, related to Hungarian. Uh, though... Uh, it isn't obvious. That is a, in, in the same way that English and Russian are related, mm -hmm. but not mutually well, comprehensible. Well, what is their common origin? What's the Proto-Finno-Ugric? Well, there obviously had been a common language from which all of these diverged, but I don't know what it is. My grandfather claims that the Finns actually originated uh, in Mongolia, and I don't know if that's true or not, but that's his way of explanation of why the almond-shaped eye appears in some members of our family. The same is true of Hungarians, by the way. Uh, and uh, Finno-Ugric uh, is an Oriental group. Really? Oh, yes. Yeah. 
And uh, this is well established historically, uh, these migrations and the founding of Hungary and so on. Uh, there are also the, the Laps and the Estonians who speak Finno-Ugric languages up around the Baltic and, and around the Arctic Circle. This is a persisting mystery, is it? Well, the I, ultimate I, origins of the language and the people? Well, it, it's not a mystery. It's a different group. They migrated oh. into Europe from Asia. That's not mysterious. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for the call. 591-7200, and we'll go on to the next. Good evening. You're on the air. I guess I was wondering about your thoughts on the uh, proto-language, such as the mother tongue, and if there is, in fact, some kind of language where all languages have stemmed from. The one before the Tower of Babel. Right, exactly. <laughs> the language spoken in the Garden of Eden. I think you can probably uh, speculate on the existence of such a language. The trouble of it is we have a very hard time getting back past Indo-European. Uh, there's a field called glottagonic speculation, and recently there's developed, particularly in Russia and now in the United States, a lot of study of what they call proto-sapiens or proto-world, uh, in which people try to get beyond Finno-Ugric and Indo-European and so on. And there are some people, such as Saul Levin, for example, who try to reconstruct a connection between Indo-European and Semitic. Mostly it revolves around such things as the coincidences we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So that there are some people who believe that African languages and South American languages are connected because you can find the same word for pig, peku, in both of them. <laughs> uh, but but that's, that's just uh, the sort of thing that happens all the time. Uh, you know, coincidences between languages are, are kind of naturally come up. Um, more fruitful, perhaps, is the search for language universals, which a lot of the transformationalists have been into, but, but this is a good deal more abstract. Uh, I noticed, for example, I'm on a computer uh, network, uh, that all the computer people address each other as do, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we Southerners find it quite difficult to understand how Northerners can get by with just saying you, uh, both plural and singular, because we say y'all for the plural, <laughs> uh, just like you say ihr in German. And interestingly enough, many people will believe uh, that Southerners say y'all to um, uh, a, a single person, because I might say to a single person, how y'all, the same way I could say in German, wie geht's euch? <laughs> and it means how are you and your family at home? I'm including everybody together. But mm -hmm. it is certainly true that <clears throat> social situations will cause changes in language. For example, in Russia, we now have Grazdanin back, uh, where we used to always have to say Tavarish. Now, what's the first one mean? It means Mr., and Tavarish means comrade. <clears throat> comrade is gone. Yeah, it's gone unless you're part of a, a group that wants to bring it back. <clears throat> and the same way, in, in Italy, in the fascist era, one had to be very careful as to whether one said to or lay a voy. So these things do uh, dominate, much like the PC movement in America today. Hmm. But it's ironic that... Uh, in English, which also had a dual system of polite and familiar, uh, as a consequence of the great revolutionary and democratic movements in the 18th century, it was felt politically incorrect to have two separate forms of so, address. So we lost thou rather than you. And we lost the thee and thou, and oddly enough, the one we kept was the formal one, the you. How do you account for that? I, I do not. <coughs> 
Oh, speaking, you, you used the word duel, and that reminded me, in Old English, we had a duel. So that when you That's spoke right. to two people, Twain. you say yit, uh, which meant you too. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And so it was kind of interesting that you had a duel, we too, and you too. And, of course, in, in Gothic, and still in some parts of Germany, you have things like it's and ink. Uh, and there was the word Twain, which is yeah. preserved in Twain, mm -hmm. as in yeah. Mark Twain. I would fain hear some discourse between you Twain as a line <laughs> yeah. from someplace in Shakespeare. Well, bet Twain between, and the pedants yeah. will insist you only use it for two. You don't mm -hmm. say between three people. Yeah. Well, Shakespeare will even say things like Ayan as the plural for eyes because there are only two of them, and Shun mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. the plural for shoe because there are only two. So. There's no limit to the kinds of interesting questions you can get into when you yeah. take a linguistic focus on things. Uh, what are the, uh, we've got a minute left, what are the really hot issues that people are arguing about these days? Or what's well, the single it, hottest? Well, it depends what people you're talking to, but the uh, linguistic theory, I mean formal syntactic theory, is in a state of enormous flux. Uh, if you stop looking for three or four years, I think you're totally out of touch. Things are moving that fast. Yeah, I think that's true. The kinds of grammars, you know, we run through things like Montague grammar just in a year. So uh, you'll have tremendous bursting movements in linguistics, and we, they are passed by. But literary criticism has become the same way, so a great deal of study is now in flux. And it's very hard to put your finger on anything in linguistics right at the present time, and that will be true, I think, for the next hundred years. Well, I hope it's not as chaotic as what's happened in literary, or as nihilistic as what has happened in literary criticism itself. But that is a topic for another evening, and indeed we've done it on some other evenings. Our guests tonight have been Andrew Schiller and James Marchand, and uh, superb service rendered by both. I thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us.